Thanks to you at home for joining me this hour once again. We now have a date, March 4th, 2024. That is the day that Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis proposed her case against Trump and his 18 co-defendants. That is the date she would like it to go to trial. And that would put this trial in Georgia just two months after the January 2nd date that Special Counsel Jack Smith proposed for the federal case against Trump's attempts to overturn the 2020 election. And it would be just three weeks before Trump's hush money case is set to start in New York. And it would be just two months before the start of Jack Smith's Mar-a-Lago classified documents case, which is on May 20th. And it would be just one day before Super Tuesday. That means just 200 days from tomorrow, Trump and his co-defendants could be in a potentially televised courtroom battling this all out just one day before the biggest day on the Republican primary calendar. Now, Trump and the rest of the defendants in this case will all file whatever motions they want, and the decisions about the trial dates will ultimately be made by the judges presiding over the case, and this case in particular. But let's put that calendar back up for a second. Trump's 2024 calendar is already so jam-packed with legal troubles. Where else on that calendar is there a window for this Georgia case, if not in March? We're going to get some expert legal help breaking all of that down in just a second. But first, I want to talk about the other reason that Trump's packed 2024 legal calendar is problematic for him. It is tearing a hole in his wallet. The New York Times reports that in the first six months of this year, Trump and his various PACs raised about $67 million, which, yes, is an eye-popping sum. But in that same period of time, Trump and his PACs spent $90 million. And 30 cents of every dollar they spent was on legal fees and other investigation-related bills. $27 million to fight his legal troubles in just the first six months of the year, a period of time, by the way, when he was only facing two criminal indictments instead of the current four. Those are big expenses, seemingly unsustainable expenses. Now, in a hearing for the federal 2020 election case in D.C. last Friday, one of Trump's lawyers mentioned that they plan to use volunteer lawyers to help handle the case. Volunteer lawyers, presumably not the kind of lawyers who are paid, so definitely cheap. And that could be the reason why they are talking about volunteer lawyers. But there is also this. Trump doesn't have that many paid lawyers representing him. There are only 10 lawyers heading up Trump's various legal defense teams in the four criminal cases against him. Now, I know any amount of lawyers is a lot of lawyers to a normal person, for, but for a former president facing 91 felony charges, this seems like a relatively small number of people. One lawyer, Todd Blanche, is representing Trump three times over. Todd Blanche is on three different cases. And if former President Trump is already hemorrhaging cash with this small, shall we say, elite group of lawyers, then yeah. He might need to bring in some volunteer staff staff to help manage the defense for 91 felony counts. And then, of course, there are the legal bills from Trump's co-defendants, bills that Trump and his various PACs are paying. People like Trump's valet, Walt Nauda, and Trump's property manager, Carlos de Oliveira, those fellows from the Mar-a-Lago case. And those are just the people we know Trump and his PACs are paying the legal bills for. Thanks to Fonnie Willis's Georgia indictment, Trump now has 18 more co-defendants. And that means 18 more people facing potentially serious jail time 
and needing to figure out how to pay their legal bills. And that might be problematic for more than just Trump's wallet. Today, former Trump attorney and current Trump co-defendant Jenna Ellis turned to a Christian crowdfunding website to raise cash for her legal defense. You can send Jenna Ellis money or you can send Jenna Ellis digital prayers to help her defend herself in this case in Georgia. And there are a lot of potential tea leaves we could read there. Does that mean that Trump is not footing Jenna Ellis's legal bills? What does that mean for the rest of the co-defendants in this case? At the moment where Trump needs to be doing everything he can to keep all of his co-defendants and alleged co-conspirators on his side as these numerous and considerable legal troubles cloud his foreseeable future, how long can Trump afford to pay other people's lawyers and, for that matter, his own? Joining me now are Mary McCord, former acting assistant attorney general for national security at the Department of Justice, and Andrew Weissman, former FBI general counsel and member of special counsel Robert Mueller's investigation. Mary and Andrew are, of course, the co-hosts of the MSNBC podcast, Prosecuting Donald Trump, where I get all my good ideas for things to talk about on television. Um, Andrew, the, the burn rate in terms of Trump's PACs, spending money on these legal pa- problems, is staggering. And that's bef- that was all, the data that we have is from before these latest indictments landed. Does this seem problematic to you as it does to me, a layperson on the outside? So I have a couple thoughts. One is, just to put it in perspective, there are many, many people in the federal and state system who can't afford counsel at all. Yes. And it is a constitutional requirement that when that when they can show that they're destitute, that that, that counsel is paid for. So my heart doesn't really go out to these people in terms of um, the comparative in terms of the sort of dual system of justice that we have here. Um, but with money, unfortunately, comes power. Um, you see it, whether it's an organized crime prosecution that I've, I've done in the past, where you have so-called house counsel. I've seen it in the corporate setting where corporations pay for counsel for individuals and some of those people do their job and they represent the person as they should independently. But there are subtle and not so subtle pressures. And we've seen it in this very case. Cassidy Hutchinson yeah. gave us explicit testimony about that she was given sort of Trump-appointed counsel. And she actually said, she asked, who's paying for my counsel? And her counsel, if this is true, completely unethically says, essentially, don't worry your pretty little head about it, which is just unreal. Um, She was entitled to know that. Um, So that is the way in which money can be used to sort of keep everybody In in, in line and inside the tent. And, you know, the first thing I said when I saw that there were 18 co-defendants here, as we saw that there are two in the documents case, is how do you keep these all these people in line? Because in the Georgia case, those are all potential cooperators because there is no federal pardon with respect to those cases. Those people are really facing real time and the proof on some of them looks really strong. So, you know, he needs to be able to sort of figure out how is he going to do that? Um, and money and supporting them in terms of their counsel is one way to do that. He's learned his lesson from Michael Cohen, yeah. where when we were prosecuting him in the, in the Mueller investigation, the spigot was turned off and he felt abandoned. Um, and so that's the downside. Um, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
paying for the lawyers is one of the main ways it seems that Trump exerts influence in terms of loyalty when it comes to potential co-defendants singing to the feds or not. It's saying I have your back. And also it can be a real issue. And for some of these people, this is you know, having retained counsel as opposed to appointed counsel is really expensive. So in addition to the you know, being indicted, it's not like any of us wake up and, you know, and say, you know, this is a great day. I just was indicted. But then you have to spend, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not more for counsel um, in a case like this, which is, you know, a big sprawling case. Um, so having somebody who's going to be a benefactor is important. And one would hope that benefactor actually has the cash in his pockets to do yes. the thing that you're hoping the benefactor yes. does. But just remember, uh, Donald Trump does have a way of raising money. He does. We have seen, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if there is more money that's that will come in. from somewhere. Mary, yeah. what's going on with volunteer lawyers? Is that a usual thing? And, and what does it signal to you about the counsel that he does have in some of these cases? Well, pro bono lawyering is well known, particularly in the public interest arena. In fact, my you know day job is running a pro bono shop, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, and we do all of our work pro bono. But that's usually not representing a candidate for president, a well who has been well financed and uh, uh, portrayed himself as a billionaire for decades, and who is facing criminal charges in four different. Um, uh, different states and different and federal cases as well. So it's a very different kind type of thing to think about volunteer lawyering. And I haven't had time to look into this yet, but I do think that any volunteer lawyers will have to also look into whether their in-kind contra- contributions could be perceived to be uh, political donations, because that could put some restrictions on that. Um, but I think there's some other things that are significant about what we're seeing with um, Donald Trump's legal problems. One is, you know, we've been talking now about how much he has spent on legal representation and how uh, few lawyers he has on his team. I would note that CNBC recently reported that he had left high and dry many of his former lawyers who are now his co-defendants in the Bonnie Willis case and are unindicted co-conspirators in the Jack Smith January 6th related case. So I think the lawyers, whether they're, you know, whether they want to be volunteering or don't want to be volunteering ought to go into this thinking I'm, it's a, there's a good chance I'm not going to get paid. And that could certainly dissuade lawyers who are expecting to be paid from representing Mr. Trump. I think it also is a deterrent for additional lawyers or others in the future to, you know, hitch their wagon to Mr. Trump, who has a a habit we now see of, you know, kind of dragging people into a situation where they face their own criminal liability, like we're seeing now in these indictments, particularly the Georgia indictment. And third, I think that most of the legal bills, as I understand it now, are being paid uh, by one of his PACs, the Save America PAC. And this is a PAC that recruited uh, and sought money based on false claims of election fraud. And at some point, the people, you know, making those in many cases, small dollar gifts have got to think through, do they really want their money to be going to defending these multiple criminal cases? Now, of course, he's shifted gears, as Andrew just indicated, to now explicitly fundraising on arguing that he's the victim of political persecution and political prosecution. Um, but still, for the people, for the many, many people out there who are con- who do not have substantial means and are contributing some of their income 
to these to these packs for these reasons, you know, they may they may start thinking twice uh, as so many more cases are piling up on him. Andrew, um, Mary makes a point about who is actually working for Donald Trump in terms of counsel and maybe because he's such a difficult client or a notoriously tight fisted client who doesn't pay his bills. We're not talking about big law firms here. John Laura, who's defending Trump in the federal cases, his website says they have four lawyers and a paralegal. Todd Blanche, who's representing him in three of these cases, at Blanche Law, there are two lawyers. You're talking about cases where the discovery in the federal case, 11.6, I believe, million documents. Now, I know this is kind of one of the excuses that Trump's legal team has said, we we can't get through all of this in a a lot of time. Well, the reason for part of that is there are two people in the shop, right? I mean, what can you tell me about the bare bones nature of his counsel, given the mountain of evidence that the feds have, that they, the DA has, and how they're going to sort of plow through that to assemble a defense. Well, you know, it's interesting because that is something that's got a, it's sort of a two-edged sword in the DC case, because you have um, Jack Smith who's saying, I want a really fast trial. We're going to see the same thing playing out in the Georgia case, where Fonnie Willis is now saying, I want a March trial. Um, and at the same time, the um, defense gets to say, but, you know, there's a huge amount of resources needed to get through this. So one of the things that was argued before Judge Chutkin in the D.C. case was, could you give sensitive material to volunteer lawyers, as, as Mary talked about? And the judge basically was like, I really don't want volunteer lawyers because that opens a real Pandora's box of exactly who's getting this. But if they're employed lawyers, um, and that could be, by the way, they're discovery lawyers. They're people you can get who um, are there for sort of a limited purpose, but they have to be employed. She was clearly concerned about that issue. But if you're Jack Smith, it's a tough call because you want to get to trial. So you have to sort of allow the defense to sort of expand its team to get through all of this. You know, that's where, to Mary's point, I mean, this is somebody who has said he's a billionaire. Yeah. Um, we're now not talking about can he fund many, many other people. We're just talking about his own defense. And leaving aside that, yes, he doesn't have big law firms for a whole variety of reasons. He could bring in other um, lawyers. Exactly. And so he has made zero showing that he does not have the fan- financial wherewithal to get through all of this. And again, just to repeat something that Judge Chutkin said is, you know, there's going to be a faster trial if you continue to interfere with the administration of justice. Yeah. So he is not helping himself with her ultimate decision on August 28th when she will decide when that trial goes forward. But I do wonder, I mean, whether he could get a big law firm just because he is so toxic in the sort of broader sense of American society, does Cravath, Swain, and Moore really want to represent Donald Trump? Or does the Blanche Blanche Law with the two lawyers, are they more inclined to? Yeah, well, I mean, look at other former presidents. I mean, I keep on using the example of David Kendall. I mean, so you have somebody who's like the cream of the crop, where anybody in the legal profession looks at who is representing and says, okay, that is absolutely top-notch, impeccable counsel. And I'm not knocking Todd Blanchard, John Loro, um, but they're they're not in the same caliber. And there is a reason. And a part of it's Mary's reason, which is like people, it's a service, you should get paid for it. Yeah. And the other is that if you're at that stage in your career where you would have somebody like a former president, they need to take your advice. So if you have somebody who's going to really, you're going to end up like Mr. Corcoran, where you're both a lawyer and a witness, which is unbelievable. Mary and I have talked about that. I mean, you just don't want to be in that position. 
It's unbelievable that Evan Corcoran is still a lawyer in this case. He's the star witness for the Mar-a-Lago. We, we have more to talk to you both about Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman. Please do not go anywhere. When we come back this evening, what might be going through Donald Trump's mind as he faces a trip to the Fulton County lockup sometime over the next few days? We're going to get some insight from his niece, Mary Trump. Plus, special counsel Jack Smith wanted access to Donald Trump's Twitter account, and he got it. The question is, why? That is next. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Hi, everyone. It's Katie Fang. Did you know my weekly show on MSNBC is now available as a podcast? With my decades of experience as a trial lawyer, you'll get an insider's perspective on all things legal. At a time when politics and the law are inextricably intertwined, my guests and I break down what's next and why it matters both inside and outside the courtroom. Search for The Katie Fang Show wherever you're listening and follow. Jack Smith has gotten his hands on Donald Trump's Twitter account. According to newly unsealed court filings, the special counsel requested everything from tweets created, drafted, favorited, liked, or retweeted by at real Donald Trump, including any subsequently deleted ones, to all direct messages sent from, received by, stored in draft form in, or otherwise associated with at real Donald Trump. It is unclear who may have actually written those tweets and DMs that issued forth from Mr. Trump's Twitter account, but it is all stuff that the special counsel wanted to see. Smith asked for other Twitter data as well, including location information for the the user of at real Donald Trump from October 2020 to January 2021 and IP addresses used to log into the account between October 2020 and January 2021. That is a lot that the special counsel has asked for and apparently received. So what exactly are the feds looking for? Still with me are Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman. Mary, let me go to you on this first. Just what 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 do you think Jack Smith is looking for in the direct messages? So the direct messages are interesting um, because I would not have necessarily expected that he would be using the direct message function, but appears that either he or someone else with access to his account was using that function. So I would be looking at a number of things. I would be looking for who's he having direct messages with? Are, is it people who are responding to his tweets? Are some of those people who showed up and attacked the Capitol on January 6th? Or some of those people, people who threatened election workers or election officials in the the states, particularly the states where the pressure campaign was put on. What was he saying to them if he was having those direct messages? The the direct messages also could reveal intent. They could reveal knowledge. They could reveal consciousness of guilt. It's possible he was also direct messaging people uh, in his own sort of circle. And it's possible that some of those might acknowledge um, some of the falsity of the things he was tweeting. We just don't know. But I certainly know I would be interested if I were Jack Smith in seeing those. The other things 
because it's a little bit easier for us to guess what he was getting at, the IP addresses um, and the locations when the account was being used. Jack Smith needs to know who all had access and was able to post tweets on that account. We know Don Scavino is one of those people. Were there others? And were the tweets that in many ways are the most um, incendiary here, the ones that are included in Jack Smith's indictment related to January 6th and the buildup to January 6th, were the tweets that that really got people planning to come on January 6th, that really promoted election fraud, that that lied about Mike Pence's ability to uh, fail to not certify the vote, uh, and even lied about Mike Pence agreeing with him and that he had the authority to not certify the vote. Jack Smith needs to know who sent those because, you know, part of his theory is that's Mr. Trump. Andrew, is it, do you, I know this is asking sort of the impossible of you, but do you think that Jack Smith is looking to get the information from the the DMs or the draft messages or whatever? Or do you think he's trying to foreclose the possibility that Trump can say, I never sent that tweet? That so, so that he could that he knows that it wasn't Dan Scavino that said be there will be wild. He knows definitively it's Donald Trump who sent that yeah, tweet. The answer is both. <laughs> okay. um, you know, it's like you want to know everything. It, just to be clear, what he what was this application? Totally normal, absolute for all the reasons that Mary said. You want to know emails, any sort of uh, texting, DMs, any sort of form of communication of the person you're investigating. You want to know. This is standard. Beryl Howell, the the former chief judge who presided over this, made a point of saying, you know, I know all about this because in Special Counsel Mueller's case, there were hundreds of these that were done. So she knows that this is a standard practice, um, and it's particularly useful when you discover a form of communication where the people using it don't think that law enforcement can get it because there may be sort of more candor. One note of caution. I think if this was really bombshell evidence, we would have seen some sign of it in the uh, Jack Smith January 6th indictment. And it doesn't, it's not a necessary thing yeah. to put it in, but I just think if it was something really explosive, given just how much was revealed in that indictment, that there would have been some sign of it. So maybe it is then the latter that he need, just Jack Smith needs to know in the same way that you interview witnesses who aren't going to necessarily say what you need to say for your case, that they aren't going to say anything that actively harms you. It's knowing that it, Donald Trump cannot offer the defense. I never sent that tweet. That was someone else that did it. I Absolutely. never sent that DM. Absolutely. You go in hoping that you have you're sort of looking for all of that. But you sometimes it's a dry hole and you don't get anything. But it can be that you all you do is you sort of make it you foreclose the issue of the defendant's saying, oh, wait, I didn't do that. So it's it's one of those things where it could be all of those going in because you don't know what's going to be in the box that you open and see inside what Twitter reveals. That's why they were pressing in these hearings for all of the information. Um, and Judge Howell was just excellent about pressing them for, you know, stop playing games. And she pointedly said, why are you suddenly doing this now with respect to former President Trump when you haven't done this for anyone else. For anyone else. And she knows because um, she has been presiding over these things with this exact company. Um, but again, I have just a, some note of caution in my own head as to how important this inf information is. Well, I do think it's interesting that all T's are being crossed. All I's are being yep. dotted. This is very much a comprehensive set of information that the special counsel now has at his fingertips. Mary McCord and Andrew Weissman, my two favorite podcasters in this <laughs> season of litigation, 
Thank you guys so much for your time and wisdom. I really appreciate it. Happy anniversary. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, she warned Trump about his inflammatory remarks. And now the judge handling the January 6th case is getting death threats. That story is coming up. But first, what is waiting for Donald Trump when he has to surrender and be booked inside a Fulton County jail? Mary Trump joins me to talk about all that coming up next. Stay with us. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow. When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Unless someone tells me differently, we are are following our our, our normal practices. And so it doesn't matter your status. We we have mugshots ready for you. By next Friday, Donald Trump and 18 others will all have to surrender at the Rice Street Jail in Atlanta. And if they are treated the same way as every other defendant, as the sheriff suggested right there, they will have to take mugshots and get fingerprinted and fill out forms, including a medical questionnaire. Now, in his previous three criminal indictments, the former president was processed and arraigned in a matter of hours. There were no mug shots and there were no cameras present. But at the Rice Street Jail, the booking process can take up to 12 hours because of overcrowding and defendants have to be booked and arraigned separately. That arraignment could happen on camera sometime during the week of September 5th. Mr. Trump could appear virtually or waive it, but he will have to show up to the jail regardless sometime before Friday, August 25th. That is the deadline for him to surrender and be booked and processed on all 13 counts in the Fulton County criminal indictment. Joining me now is someone who knows Mr. Trump very well, Mary Trump. She is Donald Trump's niece, and she is the author of the Backstory Serial Substack and host of the Mary Trump Show podcast. Ms. Trump, thank you so much for being here tonight. I'm so eager to get your thoughts on the man, your uncle, you know well. The first is, I, I kind of wonder as we talk about the, the booking process, the potential of mugshots and fingerprints and kind of marching through jail like every other defendant, what you think of this idea that Chris Christie floated a couple of weeks ago? He says he knows Trump really well, and as no matter how he's been bragging and going on about not being afraid, he goes to bed at every night thinking about the sound of that jail cell door closing behind him. Do you think that deep down inside this is weighing on him in the, the middle of the night, for example? Yeah. And first of all, thank you so much for having me. Uh, It's great to be here. Uh, I don't think that it's as conscious as Chris Christie uh, seems to think, because there are so many reasons for Donald not to believe this is happening, first of all. And secondly, probably the 
the worst thing he can feel is humiliation. So he uses a lot of uh, weapons at his disposal, a lot of defense mechanisms to displace that humiliation, to make it unconscious so he doesn't have to feel. So we've been hearing from a lot of people in his inner circle that he's furious all the time. Uh, It's much better to feel angry than it is to feel humiliated or afraid. But Donald is and always has been a frightened little boy deep down. And I actually believe that when he goes through this process next week or in the coming days, if he does, as he should, as all of them should, because everybody else in his position has to, it might actually start breaking through that there's nothing he can do to get out of this. We saw this in New York. He wasn't he wasn't arrogant. He wasn't brash. He submitted uh, in a way that was meek. And uh, we're going to see the same thing, um, but on steroids next week, I believe. Yeah, I, I think that you're making such, well, keen observations, obvious, quite obviously, because you know the man well. But but I think what you say about the the manner in which he has sort of denied this reality is through anger and vitriol. And you can kind of deny the concept of incarceration. But when he is walked and potentially mugshotted and fingerprinted and put through a, a jail system that is not at all similar to the booking process that he's gone through thus far— I wonder if that in and of itself is a form of humiliation, just the ver- the man who has to descend from the gilded palace in which he resides to sort of the basis levels of the, the ju- judicial system and treated like a common criminal. That that very process to me seems like a schismatic moment in Donald Trump's life. Yeah, and, and quite honestly, just the fact that he has to show up on somebody else's schedule, and he does not have the option of saying, you know what, I don't want to do this. Uh, That in itself is humiliating enough. We are seeing a man who, for his entire life, has never had the experience of being held accountable for anything, you know, who has never had to submit to anybody, who has always had the system rigged in his favor, at this point now where for the fourth time, not only is he going, I'm sorry, for the fourth time, he's going to have to show up and stand in front of a judge or go through the processing. But this time, he's actually going to have to go through all of it, just like any common criminal defendant. You mentioned the concept of accountability and how it's not something that Donald Trump is particularly familiar with. I wonder what you think of the, the, the peril he keeps putting himself in, legally speaking, by lashing out at prosecutors, targeting judges, um, speaking badly about the very people who will determine his fate and being effectively uh, thre- not threatened, but, but f- potentially forced to pay a price for that in the form of a trial date that's moved up or a fine or even the possibility of being incarcerated while he awaits trial. Do you think there is anything at this point that can force Donald Trump to stop the vitriol, to stop the tweets, to stop the rants? Or is he just going to push this as far as he possibly can? Uh, The short answer is no. (laughs) He is not going to be able to stop himself. And there's been a really interesting shift over the last few months or a couple of years, uh, the the way in which he is presenting himself uh, in social media, the kind of the attacking nature, the aggressiveness, 
that used to be strategy for him. You know, he used to throw temper tantrums strategically to get his way. It's not strategy anymore. Uh, he is literally doing what he's done in other contexts, which is pushing the envelope to see how much he can get away with, which obviously until this time has been everything. Um, but the unconscious fear, terror, and especially fear of humiliation is so strong that he cannot course correct um, and realize that doing what he's always done is at this time not going to get him what is he wants. In fact, quite the opposite. Yeah. I mean, the, the idea that anger has become the dominant emotion to effectively make up for all the other things that he doesn't want to feel is a dangerous proposition indeed. Mary Trump, it's invaluable to have your perspective on this and this individual at this time. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Thank you. Still ahead this evening, Donald Trump and MAGA Republicans pride themselves on being the party that backs the blue. But what happens when they are the ones in handcuffs? That is next. Last week, a 12-year-old named Tashawn Bernard was taking out the trash at his home in Lansing, Michigan, when this happened. A Lansing police officer approached Tashawn with his gun drawn and then put the 12-year-old in handcuffs and detained him. Officers claim that the child, who is not old enough to drive, matched the description of a suspected car thief in the area. The boy's parents say their son was terrified by the incident, and you can sort of see that in the video. Despite having done nothing wrong, the boy doesn't resist the officer as he is handcuffed and pulled by the arm to a police cruiser. Now contrast that with the way that this adult man in Texas reacted when he was confronted and put in handcuffs by law enforcement. No, you did not. You came in, you flew in, and you were full on. I did ask you to get back. You better recalculate, mother. The man you just saw hurling expletives at police officers is Texas Republican Congressman Ronnie Jackson. The video obtained this week by the Texas Tribune shows Congressman Jackson getting into an altercation with police, becoming belligerent, and eventually being forced to the ground. Congressman Jackson had been attending a rodeo near Amarillo, Texas, when a teenager reportedly began experiencing a medical emergency. Congressman Jackson, who is a physician, attempted to assist the teenager. But when police asked the congressman to step back so that emergency medical services could respond, Congressman Jackson reportedly began shouting and threatening to beat up a state trooper. That is when the handcuffs came out and Ronnie Jackson was thrown to the ground. It should be noted that this is the same Congressman Ronnie Jackson who has accused Democrats of failing to support law enforcement. In May of 2021, Ronnie Jackson tweeted, unlike our president, I will always stand by our country's police officers. Back the blue. Since this indictment, Congressman Jackson has stood by his actions, claiming he was right to disobey the officer's orders. And it is one of the latest examples we have of a Republican Party that claims to support law enforcement right up until the moment that members of this party find themselves in trouble with the law. There is no better example of this than Donald Trump, who regularly calls for law and order while simultaneously attacking federal law enforcement and deriding prosecutors. Now, just to be clear here, it is not that police actions are always justified. The story of 12-year-old Tashawn Bernard makes that abundantly clear. 
But egregious policing like that is exactly what many Democrats and reform advocates are trying to change. And it is precisely what Republicans have tried to weaponize as they decry any call for reform. And today, Trump's very real attacks on law enforcement and our system of justice appear to have placed innocent people in very serious jeopardy. That story is coming up next. Donald Trump has waged a very public war against law enforcement and the prosecutors who have indicted him. He has targeted Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis, calling her a failed DA from Atlanta where murders and crimes soar. Willis says she has faced racist vitriol from Trump supporters in recent months. And yesterday, Trump used the word rigors in a Truth Social post berating Willis. Rigors, of course, rhymes with something else, and perhaps that was the point. Despite multiple orders not to, Trump has continued these attacks, and now there are real-life consequences. Today, a woman in Texas was arrested for allegedly threatening the federal judge overseeing the 2020 election case against Trump. Abigail Joe Shry called Judge Tanya Chutkin, a woman of Jamaican descent, a stupid slave, repeatedly threatening to kill Judge Chutkin. You are in our sights. We want to kill you. If Trump doesn't get elected in 2024, we are coming to kill you. So tread lightly. She ended that statement with a word that rhymes with witch. She also used that word that rhymes with rigor. This comes days after the FBI fatally shot a Utah man who was threatening to kill both President Biden and Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg. Joining me now to discuss all this is Michelle Goldberg, New York Times columnist and an MSNBC contributor. Michelle, it is so terribly distressing and so completely unsurprising that this is the sort of harvest of all the threats that Trump has made online. I mean, can we see this as anything other than a response or an extension of what Trump has been calling for on social media? No, I mean, this has been the pattern throughout his presidency, right? I mean, you saw the entire time that he was in office, he would make these threats and some of his more worshipful fans, you know, the person who sent mail bombs to Democrats and journalists and the like would try to act on them. And so, and, you know, and he's kind of warned over and over again that that's where these threats lead to, and it only leads him to escalate them. And what strikes me is just how, you know, people talk about kind of special treatment. Mm -hmm. He is being treated with such kid gloves. He is being treated so unlike any other criminal defendant in his position in that there has been so far very little sanction for, you know, threats, witness intimidations, intimations. When you think about what's happening in Georgia, I mean, the Georgia law, Georgia's law on bail is, in my opinion, unreasonably strict in that you basically, it puts the burden of proof on the defendant to show that they don't pose a risk of witness tampering or obstruction of justice. I mean, there is no universe in which Donald Trump poses no risk of witness tampering or obstruction of justice, but I don't think anybody expects him to be um, held pending trial. You know, but at some point there has to be some sort of sanction or he's just going to keep escalating. Well, right. And I think it's actually really dangerous for him not to face some kind of sanction. The problem is what you're in. I mean, honestly, the sanction, the fine isn't going to do it. Moving the trial date up and around seems very complicated and almost impossible in the Georgia case. So then what's left? Incarceration. And and, and, And that is sort of widely dismissed as impossible. But if Trump doesn't face some kind of sort of sanction, then it's an implicit acceptance that Trump going to do what Trump going to do. Right. No, I mean, I 
think it certainly has to be at least on the table. If you look at what happened with the E. Jean Carroll verdict, right? He gets, I believe, a $5 million verdict for defamation after he's held responsible for sexual assault. And basically the next day, he's back to defaming her all over again. So he's someone who's not going to be um, held in check by, and in fact, not only is he not going to be held in check, but seems to perceive any limits as a kind of dare and as a yes. as, as a, um, a go to double down on his aggression. And so, yeah, I hope that there is at least, I think we should stop talking about jail as unthinkable and, you know, and start saying that there's going to be a point and maybe judges should be clear about where that point is at which it will become inevitable. Well, and I think it's not just because it's Donald Trump. It's also for the example that he sets to other would-be sort of people who exhibit threatening behavior. I have to recall the video we just played of Ronnie Jackson, a Republican congressman who's out there berating law enforcement, calling them many names under the sun, and then simultaneously, audaciously has the, you know— the chutzpah, I don't know what you would call it, that embraces the hypocrisy of saying he's someone that backs the blue, that right, he's the law and order guy. And it's been going. The fallacy of that line of, of that, of that position is, is revealed so acutely in moments like this. And I, and even though it is repetitive, I think it, it really bears mentioning this. When law enforcement comes for you, there's no backing the blue. Well, I don't think that that's what backing the blue means. Yes. Right. I mean, backing the blue it means, means basically, else. right. Backing the blue in there as in, in the way that they tend to use that phrase means that the law should be a kind of Praetorian guard against a certain strata of people and that it should be backed in doing whatever it needs to do to defend them and their property interests. Right. It certainly doesn't mean law and order in the general sense or the global sense. Otherwise, the Republican Party would have been outraged over what happened to the Capitol Police on January. Well, and let's keep in mind the genesis of Back the Blue came out as a sort of collective conservative response to the Black Lives Matter movement. There is an implicit, an implicit race, racial and racist thread that runs through this sort of confederacy of people. Right. So the police are not they're not supposed to police them. The police are supposed to police those other people. And when the police end up policing, say, that Donald Trump or Ronnie Jackson, they are kind of by definition, by this definition, um, stepping out of their stepping out of their proper role. I do wonder, um, between January 6th and defund the FBI, whether law enforcement proper as an institution begins to break with the Republican Party if it continues to be headed by someone like Donald Trump, who himself is facing multiple criminal indictments, is deriding prosecutors, law enforcement officials, and is, you know, accusing basically the Department of Justice of being a wing of the deep state. I mean, do you just think the institutional sort of desires of law enforcement are too closely aligned with the Republican Party to ever see a break, no matter how vitriolic the relationship gets? Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> You're like, full stop. It'll never happen. Yeah, I can't imagine. I mean, certainly I'm sure it happens, you know, with the, at the higher levels of of, for example, the FBI, the Justice Department, among some prosecutors. But no, I think that fundamentally there are plenty of, not all police, obviously, but I think plenty of police who also see that kind of back the blue um, definition of their role, right? And, as, as to kind of protect, you know, protect the Donald Trumps of the world as opposed to protect the world from Donald Trump. I just wonder if the hypocrisy, if he's actually convicted whether the Republican Party can truly say with, you know, without even a glimmer of a smile on its face that it's truly the party of law and order. Well, it hasn't been the party of law and order, sure. so, you know, at least since Richard. But, their front, but the front runner of their party for the nomination may be a convict at one point. 
Right. Well, the front runner for the I mean, he's already he's he's charged with 91 felonies. He's been found guilty of sexual assault. You know, his or not found guilty, found responsible for sexual assault. His um, company has, you know, is about to be tried for I, I don't even remember offhand. But right. It's There's like, a lot. Right. For, you know, kind of all kinds of layers of fraud. There, nobody believes that Donald Trump is a rule follower, but he preserves a certain sort of hierarchy. He sure does. Michelle Goldberg, no better person to just like get work ourselves (laughs) up into a lather about this. Thank you for your time today, my friend. That is our show for this evening.